Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's absolutely free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. So Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a whole lot more. Basically, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah. And you want to know what else? You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, which is really cool. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And just like that, a new podcast is born. Welcome to Unnatural. It's been a long time coming. We thank you for joining us. I'm Andy. I'm Emily. Emily, it's finally happened. It's finally here. We did it. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Well, not yet. We're about to do it. We're about to do it. But oh, it's <laughs> it's going to start here any moment. But we want to thank you for joining us. This is a true crime podcast uh, that's unlike any other, I would say, And we kind of go back and forth with our episodes, and we've got a lot of fun stuff for this season, Emily. We absolutely do. I'm so excited to get the show on the road, have everybody listen to it, since we've been kind of hyping it up for a while now. Yeah, and here's some things to look out for on our show. Uh, How about serial killer nickname rankings? Are we the only ones to do that? I don't know. Should we patent this? Trademark that shit. (laughs) But that's not all. We also give you lots of 80s, 90s, 2000 song references that are kind of sprinkled in the episodes. Yeah, we bust out into song all the time. Yeah, I think there's a few of them in this one. No Mambo number five yet, though. Not yet. Who knows when that's coming our way? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> and a whole lot of other great stuff. But we, we have fun with this podcast. Obviously, these cases are serious cases, and we do delve into the serious side. But we also want to give a little personality to these and have a little fun with it as well. Absolutely. I have enough personality for 10 people to be on here. So buckle up, buttercups. Yeah. Sometimes she's 10 people simultaneously during the episode. So, which makes it even more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. Thanks for being with us here. Unnatural, episode one. Starts right now. excited and I just can't hide it. Same. So today we're going to talk about Paul Michael Stefani aka the weepy voiced killer. In the early 1980s the St. Paul Minneapolis 
police were perplexed by several troubling anonymous phone calls of a weeping man who was confessing to crimes he had committed, begging the police to find him so he could stop killing, thus earning him the name the weepy-voiced killer. And he was later identified as 37-year-old Paul Michael Stefani. Yeah, I gotta say, in terms of serial killer nicknames, this one doesn't really do it for me. I'm gonna give it a underwhelming 4 out of 10. I don't think you'd want the nickname the weepy voice killer. I mean, if he was like the crying willow man, that's like, that that adds a little bit more creep factor. And when you look at this guy and when you hear him... He sounds like a whiny little bitch. He is absolutely a whiny bitch. But we digress. Moving on. (laughs) So he was born September 8th, 1944 in Austin, Minnesota. And by the way, for folks who don't know, and Emily, you would know, you grew up in the area. Austin, Minnesota, home to the famous Spam Museum. Or is it infamous? I don't know. I believe it's infamous. Yeah, I would put it right up there with the Art Institute of Chicago and the Smithsonian. Yeah, (laughs) the Smithsonian and the Spam Museum were neck and neck for a while there. I believe it. It's a special place. Well, funny story, actually, in high school for my, like, our senior journalism video project, we had to do, like, we were in a group and we had to do a video. And the theme of our video was, like, what if... Da da da, and one of like the girls who were in the video was, "What if everything turned into spam?" <laughs> oh, the humanity! <laughs> Sounds like a horror movie. Yeah, so we went to the spam museum for it. It was great, but I digress. So he grew up on a farm just outside of town um, with his mom, stepfather, and his siblings, and he was the second oldest of ten children, and they were an extremely Catholic household. Whoa, the second of 10 kids? These days, that'd be a super spreader event. I mean, as an only child, that sounds awful. <laughs> I didn't, it really I does. didn't grow up with any siblings. It was just me. So, I mean, even though I always wanted a sibling, if I had nine of them, no, thank you. None for me. None for me, thanks. You would have ran for the hillsides, just like me. I had one older sister, and I actually learned... From her mistakes, so it was great. But nine other siblings, wow. (laughs) Paul did claim that his stepdad was abusive and would hit him and his siblings. There was accusations of being pushed down the stairs. So it doesn't sound like he had a super great childhood. Um, Unfortunately, like I scoured the internet and there's not, there's really not a lot of information about his childhood, his home life, his growing up, other than those few tidbits where he did say in an interview that he was abused. So after he graduated high school, he moved to the Twin Cities area and worked several odd jobs as janitor, warehouses, factories, that type of thing. He couldn't really hold down a job. He was getting fired a lot. But he did marry a gal named Beverly, and they did have a daughter together, but they did eventually divorce Uh, Some reports say that after the divorce, he moved in with a girlfriend uh, and he did have a history of mental illness and at one point in time was convicted of aggravated assault. Yeah. Just by the way you're describing it, it sounds like these are the seeds that are being planted for what's about to happen. Yeah. Especially, you know, the big family, child abuse, religion, That just seems to be a common factor in the cocktail of a serial killer. 
So in the early hours of New Year's Day, 1981, um, a 20-year-old university student named Karen uh, was walking home from a wild night out with her friends, and she was approached by a man in a car who offered to give her a ride because if you're not from Minnesota or the Midwest, it gets super cold this time of year. This year, for example, we just got out of a polar vortex and almost every day was like with the wind chill, you were dealing with negative 25 degree temperatures. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's basically hell without the heat. And it's not fun. So for whatever reason, she didn't have a jacket on. Maybe she left it behind. Maybe she didn't bring it to begin with. I know me being 20 years old and going out clubbing, I was too cool to bring a jacket with me. But anyway, she she was approached by a man who offered her a ride, and um, unbeknownst to her, she would then be brutally attacked with a tire iron and left for dead. Oh my God, how brutal. Do we know if this was his own tire iron? I would have to assume it was his own. I couldn't really find any information about it, but, um, you know, don't get in the car with strangers, especially if you're drunk and by yourself. Yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, so just a couple hours later, around 3 a.m., police received a chilling phone call. Yes, please, this is an emergency. Please send a squad to Pierce Butler Road, Malmberg Manufacturing Company, Machine Shop. Please, there's an ambulance, too. There's a girl hurt there. Can you tell me what happened to her? Just hurry, she's laying on the ground in the back by the, by the railroad tracks, by the engine. Hurry. What's the address? I don't know. So I think everyone who just listened to that can agree that he sounds creepy. Yeah, he sound just by the phone call, he sounds deeply disturbed. You can tell this guy has a lot of issues going on inside his head. Yeah, and I know the audio is kind of hard to understand because of his whiny little bitch baby voice. <laughs> so I'm sensing a theme with his voice here. So this this is what he said. He said, "Yes, please. This is an emergency." Please send a squad car to Pierce Butler Road, Malmberg Manufacturing Company Machine Shop. Just hurry. She's laying there on the ground in the back by the railroad tracks by the engine room. Hurry. Yikes. Yeah. I'm glad you shared that because during the recording, I was just focused on the weird voice and didn't really hear exactly what he said. Right. So I guess the good news is, is that he told the police where to find her. Right, which made it obviously a lot easier for them. Yeah, so Karen was found lying naked in a snowbank, and she had been beaten so badly in her head and neck that her skull and her brain was exposed. By some miracle, she was still alive. So she survived the attack. I wasn't expecting that. Yes. I mean, in my mind, this whole time, I was just assuming she was going to die. No, and just judging by her injuries, I guess you'd you'd think that she would have, but she didn't. So she was immediately taken to a local hospital and treated for her injuries. And she did eventually regain consciousness, but because of the trauma and the injuries, she wasn't able to give police any information about her attacker because... Her brain injury from being beaten over the head multiple times was so bad that her memory was just non-existent of the whole event. That makes sense. Experts do say that when your brain suffers a traumatic injury, 
even when you regain consciousness and things start to get back to normal a little bit, it's very difficult to remember the moment right before that traumatic injury. It's just gone forever. Poof. Right. Well, even even just a trauma response in general, if you see or experience something really traumatic, even without getting beaten over the head, a lot of people don't remember what happened, which I don't know what's worse, remembering or not remembering. Yeah, it's really just catch 22. Right. But unfortunately, Paul's next victim wouldn't be as lucky as Karen. On June 3rd, 1981, a group of teenagers were playing in a field near a construction site for an overpass for I-35 in St. Paul when they spotted the body of a young woman and called 911. And the body was later identified as 18-year-old Kimberly Compton. Now, this is so sad to me because Kimberly was fresh out of high school. She came from a really small town in Wisconsin, and she wanted to move to the big city and yeah she had dreams she did uh she wanted to go to school she wanted to get a job and it just it ended so so poorly for her and so abruptly yeah so she was out and about searching for a job that same day and she took a greyhound bus into the city and like right across the street from the bus station was the infamous mickey's diner so she was sitting in there you know just having some lunch or dinner i guess i don't i'm not sure what time of day this was but um there was also a man sitting by himself eating in the diner and he came and sat with her and struck up a conversation and you know she told him that she was new in town she just moved and she was out she was just excited to get the experience of the big city and this man offered to show her around town give her a little tour of st paul where the cool things are yeah red flag red flag yeah and uh you know she was really excited and she left with him and unfortunately a few hours later she was brutally attacked with an ice pick um strangled with a shoelace and left for dead absolutely awful for that Poor girl, just to go through that situation right after she got there. This attack feels like a different vibe than the first attack. This one feels more premeditated. Maybe he was scouting out the right candidate to do this to and just happened to meet her at the diner. The first one felt a little bit more impulsive. I think so. I think he's just, he sees an opportunity. He sees a, a girl alone and he, he takes that opportunity. Kimberly was stabbed 61 times in her head, her stomach, her legs, and she did eventually die of blood loss. Um, and the police had very few clues to go off of, um, but about 48 hours later, they received another phone call. Oh, you find me? I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. Okay. And in that one, he says, will you goddamn find me? I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. And then he hangs up immediately. And he's still using that whiny bitch voice that we've been talking about. And kind of unusual for a serial killer to be calling the police like this, almost unprecedented. Well, and this will come back later, but the police originally thought that this was... A prank call until they found Kimberly and an autopsy just determined that 
the weapon used to stab her was an ice pick. And Kimberly, it did take them some time to identify her because she didn't have a purse, a wallet, an ID or anything. But she did have a key to a storage locker, cubby bin thing uh, from the bus station where she put her stuff in when she initially arrived into the city. And there they found her purse and her ID. And uh, during the autopsy, they did find some undigested food in her stomach. And since Mickey's diner was literally right across the street, that's where the police went next to see if they could find any witnesses. And they did. Oh, good deal. Was it a customer or somebody that worked there? Uh, One of the waitresses from the diner recognized her from a photo that police provided. And she did confirm that she was there alone and she started talking to a man and they left together. But she wasn't paying too close of attention. She couldn't really identify the man or anything like that. But then again, a couple days later, the police got another phone call. Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. Don't know why I had to stab her. I'm so upset about it. I keep getting drunk every day. I can't believe it. It's like a big dream. I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll try not to kill anybody else. And then in this one, he says, Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. I don't know why I had to stab her. I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll try not to kill anybody else. Like, oh, really, Paul? You'll try You'll try not to kill any more innocent women? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> right? What an upstanding gentleman he is. The guy really is unbelievable, though. I, I think that's one of the scariest parts with some of these serial killers is just seeing how far they are down this path, how delusional they are. And just the lack of humanity in his voice is really telling. Yeah. So the police did try to trace this call, I guess, um, because it was a little longer than the other ones. And they were able to trace it to a phone booth at a bus stop. And by the way, for our younger listeners, ancient tech alert here. Phone booths were these things that were everywhere, and people would actually go into them to call other people. Seems like a different world. Yeah, you toss a couple coins in, and you can call anyone. (laughs) Or Superman. I mean, they were super important for him, too. Yeah, that's where he changed outfits, or where he did his little Clark Kent to Superman swap. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah, like 80-year-old spoiler alert there. So anyway, they trace it to a phone booth by a bus stop. Did they see anybody who happened to be around there at the time? They questioned several witnesses, but nobody saw anything. Nobody remembered a guy standing in a phone booth because if you, you know, you remember this is what the 80s. So cell phones aren't a thing. Everybody's using phone booths. So it's just not something that that stands out. Um, But after this, the police did decide to release the recordings to the public, hoping that someone would recognize the voice and call in a lead. And they got several. They got over 100 tips, and police followed up on every single one, and all of them were dead ends. Oh, my God. How frustrating. If you're one of the family members of one of the victims or 
just with the police or just somebody in the public in general who's concerned about catching this guy. Super frustrating. You got to feel it's almost back to square one at this point. Yeah, until the police got a call about a domestic dispute in St. Paul. And so when the police got there, the suspect's name was Alan Lopez. And he had barricaded himself in his home. He had apparently murdered his entire family. And when the cops had set up a line of communication with him, he confessed to killing Kimberly Compton. Oh, wow. Didn't see that coming. So I guess at this point, the public's got to be a little reassured that maybe they got their man. It does. So Alan Lopez was sent to a mental facility because he had a history of being mentally unstable. He literally murdered his entire family. But just like one day of being in the mental facility, he committed suicide. So now the police think, okay, this guy confessed. Maybe we have our guy. So they start piecing things together and they were like, oh, crap, he... He was in a different mental facility the night that one of these girls was killed. Couldn't be him. But then upon some more digging, he had a day pass the day that Karen was killed. So they're thinking, oh, great. Coincidence? Probably not. Must be him. But... Doesn't have an alibi. He doesn't. But he was in jail the night that Kimberly was killed. Ooh, okay. That kind of throws a wrench into things. Yeah, so they thought they had their guy. They don't. So everything kind of went cold. They didn't have any good leads. And then on August 6th, 1982, a young boy was delivering newspapers on his regular route when he noticed something strange along the banks of the Mississippi River, Minneapolis. And as he got closer, he realized it was the body of 40-year-old nurse Barbara Simons. Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free. Absolutely free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and even edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And you know what I think is really great? Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Pretty much wherever you listen to your podcasts. And cha-ching, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Basically, it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hexagon Bar in Minneapolis the night before she was found dead, and she had reportedly told one of the waitresses, quote, I hope this guy is okay because I need a ride home. Oh, that's too bad. If you have to say that to somebody, chances are it's not a good situation to be getting yourself in. Yeah, and as we know, this guy was not okay, but thank the lucky stars for this waitress because her ears perked up, and she took a good hard look at this guy. 
just in case. As any woman probably would in that situation. How many times have you been out with your friends at the bar or wherever and a guy is just being really creepy and you do kind of give him that second look just to keep an eye on him and remember who this guy is? Yeah, absolutely. I think maybe I know I know several bartenders who really do, you know, even on busy nights, they're kind of paying attention to that kind of stuff. And if one of their customers, especially a woman, were to say something like that, yeah, they're going to pay attention to who this girl is hanging out with the rest of the night. And so Barbara, too, had been stabbed dozens of times by an ice pick or a screwdriver. And the killer had attempted to cover up the crime scene, which led investigators to believe that this wasn't this killer's first crime, first murder. And then two days after Barbara's body was discovered, the police got another phone call. Fire emergency. Please don't talk to this person. I'm sorry, I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one. Oh, my safe. Oh, my. I don't know what's the matter me. I'm sick. I'm going to kill myself, I think. Where are you? Uh, gonna, uh, there's so many guys with a real kid on it to me. I killed all day. Obviously tragic, the fact that he hasn't been caught at this point, but the police have got to be just thrilled that he keeps digging his own grave here and calling them. Because if he ever is caught and this thing goes to court, the first thing they're going to do is pull up these phone recordings. Yeah, and in this one he says, please don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first over in St. Paul. I don't know what's the matter with me. I'm sick. I'm going to kill myself, I think. I'm just going to... If somebody dies with a red shirt on, it's me. I've killed more people. I'll never make it to heaven. Now, remember that little red shirt comment, because that'll come back later. For sure. And I think it's also important to remember that little tidbit that he says there at the end. I'll never get into heaven. Because remember his religious upbringing. I think it really all goes back to that. And so it's at this point where the police realize that they're probably dealing with a serial killer or at least someone who who has killed more than one person. And they contact the FBI for help. They put together a mugshot book and narrowed it down from, you know, men with the area who had a history of, you know, assault. And they brought this book down to the Hexagon Bar and talked with the waitress and she was looking through the book, looking at these mugshots, and then she was getting towards the end and she recognized one. And that one was Paul Michael Stefani. So police then got a name, got a face, and they started doing some digging into his background, like harder digging. And they did find that he was working at Malmberg Manufacturing Company where Karen had been attacked on New Year's Day at the time she was attacked. So, and then if you think back to that audio clip, he gave very specific instructions to where she was. So, I would think that someone who's not familiar with that building wouldn't know, oh, she's by the engine room, by the railroad tracks. Right. That's got to almost immediately make him a suspect in law enforcement's eyes, or at least raise their eyebrows. Right. Also, like that assault that he was convicted of, the report of that assault states that he approached a woman and said, hey, I like your red robe. 
and reached out and fondled her. Oh, my God. Yeah. First of all, again, with the red here, he seems to really have some sort of affinity for it. And secondly, can you imagine if you're that woman, what you're feeling? How horrifying. I feel like I would throw hands. No hesitation. (laughs) Right? As you should. Don't be invading my personal space, buddy. Yes. So his victims were wearing red. Kimberly was found wearing a red jacket and Barbara was found wearing red pants. So he's got something for the color red. And I don't know what it is, but... Something about red must just, that's what he does. He loses it. So obviously he's immediately in the police's eyes, prime some suspect number one, but they didn't have enough evidence really to bring him in on anything. So they set a surveillance team on him. Now on the evening of August 21st, 1981, he left home, but somehow he lost his police tail. Now, they don't know if it was on purpose or if it was just the FBI dropped the ball, but... Hey, everybody's got to eat sometime, even during a stakeout. They might have been on a donut run. They might have (laughs) been. Some coffee, some donuts, go get some Dunkin'. Maybe they were having lunch at Mickey's. Who knows? But this proved to be one of the worst mistakes made in this case because Paul went straight down to the red light district of Minneapolis where he met 21-year-old Denise Williams. And he picked her up. She was a prostitute. They settled on a price. They went back to his place to engage in some adult activities. Like Scrabble or Monopoly or something. And afterwards, he said that he would drive her home. But he started taking some really weird twists and turns going on random side streets and she was like hey what what are you doing here sir yeah just putting myself in that situation that's where i'd start to get a little nervous maybe at that point yeah well i I don't think she was nervous at this point but she was like what the hell are you doing i know this area and he goes oh i'm just taking a shortcut and she was like "Mm, no you're not but she stayed in the car but she was starting to get some bad vibes And she was looking around the car and she saw a glass bottle like on the floor of the car. And she thought, okay, well, if this if this takes a turn for the worst, I can grab that and hit him with it. And boy, did it take a turn for the worst. He ended up pulling over on like a dead end cul-de-sac that was really dark, no street lights. I think it was kind of still under development at that point. There wasn't a whole lot of houses down there, Um, but he reached over opened the glove compartment, grabbed a screwdriver. And then according to Denise herself, he said something like, ass, grass, or gas, no one rides for free, and began to stab her. Obviously with an ice pick or a screwdriver, just like the last few times. Yep. Luckily, she had kind of already formed an escape plan in her mind. So she grabbed that glass bottle and smashed it over his face. It broke, but he just... He continued to stab her. He wasn't giving up. So she kept hitting him over and over, trying to stab him with, you know, the broken end of the bottle. And he wasn't going anywhere. And she did manage to open the passenger door and got herself out of the car and onto the ground. But he was right on top of her. And she was fighting back, but obviously that wasn't really working. And she began to scream. Now, luckily, a man who lived in one of the houses around heard the commotion, heard the screaming, and came outside and witnessed Paul on top of her stabbing her with the screwdriver. 
And he tried to intervene, but Paul went to attack him. So this man took off, went back inside his house, called 911. And during all this, Paul was probably like, well, shit, I'm fucked now. So he got into his car and he took off. You know, I got to say for her, thank God there was a glass bottle there. Because if it had been in this day and age, it would have been a plastic bottle. And she would have been toast. Right? <laughs> we don't have glass bottles anymore. I know. And you're not you're not going to break a plastic bottle and shank somebody with it. I don't know. So police showed up and Denise had been stabbed over 13 times. She was taken to the hospital, treated for her injuries. And, you know, the police came in. They showed her a collection of mug shots. And she was immediately able to pick Paul out from the photos. And not surprisingly... Guess what happens? Here comes that weepy voice. They get another call. But this one is a little bit different from the last. So here he says... I need an ambulance. I'm all cut up. I got beat up. And then the dispatcher says, well, what's your apartment number? And he says, 208, I'm bleeding. Wait, so this deranged lunatic called the cops for help? Yes. I mean, what is, I mean, what did he think was going to happen? He did for himself to actually get help. He told the cops where he was because he was bleeding. He was hurt. And... You know, the police recognized his voice right away. So instead of taking him to the hospital, they took him into custody. Now, Paul had claimed that he was the victim of a violent robbery. Oh, I was getting mugged and these guys beat me up. No, they didn't. Shut up. (laughs) You're deranged, man. (laughs) You are. So lead detective on the case, Detective Brown, showed Paul... All of the the crime scene photos, the case files for the weepy-voiced killer. And according to Detective Brown, Paul's response was he stood up from his chair and he said, quote, you're not going to pin those on me. He's like, no, I didn't do it. You're not. No. But even even in even in that interrogation room, Detective Brown was like, this is the you sound just like the guy on the recordings. So at this point, this Detective Brown, he obviously realizes we've got him. He sounds exactly like the weepy voice killer here. Yes. So Paul was charged with the attempted murder of Denise and the murder of Barbara. And he pled not guilty. And he wasn't charged with Kimberly or Karen's cases because those happened in St. Paul and they were different jurisdictions. He goes to trial. The trial lasts about six weeks and they relied pretty heavily on the voice recordings because there wasn't a whole lot of evidence at the scene. Uh, to my knowledge, they they didn't have the ice pick or the screwdriver. And they brought in an expert who would compare the voice recordings to Paul's voice, but he couldn't conclusively say that he could match the two voices. Yes, they sound they sounded very similar, but I mean, obviously during the trial, Paul wasn't going to talk like he was on those calls. However, bring in Paul's family. They brought his sister and his mother to the stand and they listened to the recordings and both of them confirmed that the voice on the recordings was that 
of Paul. Well, I would think that would be true because let's face it, his mother and sister probably heard that weepy, whiny, bitchy voice a lot over the years. Probably, absolutely, without a doubt. So he was convicted on both counts and was sentenced to 18 years for attacking Denise and 40 years for murdering Barbara. Fast forward a handful of years. Paul's now 53. It's 1997. And he is diagnosed with terminal skin cancer and given less than a year to live. And it's at this point in time where he decides that he wants to confess all of his crimes. So he calls in the detectives, the police, whatever. He says, hey, I got some stuff to tell you. So he ended up confessing to murdering Kim Compton, Barbara Simons, and Kathy Greening. Whoa, that's a name we haven't talked about. Yes, a name that we have not heard yet. Kathy was 33 and she was found drowned in her bathtub in 1982. So her friend Carol came to her house to check on her friend. They were supposed to go to they were supposed to go on a vacation or something and Kathy was late or maybe they were supposed to be just meeting up. I I'm, I'm not sure, but Carol knocks on the door and got no answer, so she let herself in and started searching the house, and there was no answer, and she was kind of like, what the heck is going on? Um, Because there was no way, there was no way her friend would be bailing on a girl's vacation. So she goes up to the bathroom, and the light was on, and she opened the door, and she was dead in her bathtub. Now, the police did investigate this, and they ruled it either an accident or... A suicide because they didn't find anything amiss in the crime scene. And those who didn't agree blamed it on her estranged husband, but charges were never filed against him. Wow. So just like that, her case was kind of closed and forgotten about really until he confessed to it years later. Yeah, it, it was. They said it was an accident or a suicide. So in the, his police interview, you know, the police are trying are trying to figure out for sure if it was Paul that did this. And he was saying, yes, you know, we met up somewhere and she brought me home and we had sex and we were taking a bath together and she was sitting in front of me and I pushed her down into the water, pushed her head under the water and drowned her. The police were interviewing him, trying to figure out if it was actually him that killed Kathy. And after questioning him and getting him to tell the whole story, they they figured out that it probably was because he went into detail about Um, how they met, how he got into her house, how he did kill her. And a lot of what he said, you know, this, this was never really released to the public. It wasn't, it wasn't a murder. So um, a lot of the details about what he said, what he talked about inside her house was like how it was. So it, it was him that killed her. And then he did confess to all of the other crimes and one of the one of the sergeants said uh, that they were blown away that he even confessed to the killing of Kathy because he was never never a suspect. It was never even brought up. But I I guess you probably see that with deathbed confessions because that's essentially what this was. I think I don't think he had a lot of remorse, like truly. But I do think that maybe the religious side of him and his religious upbringing was maybe getting to him at the end and he knew yes i'm going to die so maybe he thought that by confessing to everything that would get him into heaven in the end so that eventually on june 12 1998 at the age of 53 he died of 
cancer in the Oak Park Heights prison in Oak Park Heights, Minnesota. So, and that is the case of the weepy voiced killer. And that's a wrap. Episode one in the books. Yay. So excited. So check us out on Twitter at unnatural the pod on Instagram. We are at unnatural the podcast. We have a Facebook page, unnatural, a true crime podcast. Hit us up on Gmail, unnaturalthepodcast at gmail.com. And finally, we do have a Patreon set up, and you can find us at patreon.com slash unnaturalthepod. Yeah, and if you want to go retro style, you can always call us by phone booth. But don't call us in a weepy, oh, you need to find me. <laughs> Stop Yeah, me. don't do that. That might freak us out. We get freaked out pretty easily over here. What are we doing next week? Hey, next week, bust out the bell bottoms. We're going to go back to the 1970s and head to the tiny corner of Northwest Iowa for the Gitchy Manitou murders. Gitchy, Gitchy, yeah, yeah, da, da. <laughs> Whoa, busting out the Moulin <laughs> Rouge references here. Hey, thanks, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.